You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching is the introduction to our study, The Greatest Story. Good evening. Welcome to each and every one of you. What a joy it is to be gathered here tonight. So if you weren't here last week, my name is Christy Hess, and I will be here teaching each week, Lord willing. Um, I have been at LEFC over 20 years, so I definitely feel like I've grown up here. Uh, we got married, had two kids, and just stayed and made this our home church. And I stumbled into this role of leading and teaching WBF about four years ago. And I do mean stumbled. I didn't know what I was agreeing to at the time, but God knew, and he was at work even in my oblivion. But really, I'm just here because I love the word of God. I have always been drawn to the scriptures, even in seasons when I wasn't consistently reading my Bible. I knew this was truth, and I knew there was life here that couldn't be found anywhere else. By the time I reached adulthood, I had observed a ton of biblical knowledge. Do you know how this goes? Somewhere the rubber has to meet the road. And all that knowledge will be tested by real life. God used a particularly hard season to open my eyes in a new way. And I came out of that time having learned two things that radically changed how I engaged with his word. First of all, I learned how to study scripture. And it was right here at WBF, in fact. And secondly, I came to understand the cohesion of the whole story of the Bible. And it blew my mind. This class was born out of that passion for the story of the Bible. I discovered a void that unfortunately was not unique to my experience. I was not the only one who had grown up in church and had never known the whole story of this book. Maybe you've heard this before, that the Bible's one big story. But if no one has ever walked you through it, or you haven't intentionally tried to sort it out, the Bible probably still feels pretty fragmented. You could have the best of intentions of reading cover to cover, but you're likely going to come to the end of the Old Testament and be like, what just happened? It's not assembled in chronological order. Instead of being all linear and tidy, the story weaves all over the place. It's no wonder the Old Testament feels confusing and even disconnected from the New. But I guarantee you that the New Testament will take on new dimensions of beauty and depth when we reconnect it to the old. Here's the thing. If you don't have the big picture, it's hard to rightly understand the pieces. That's true of a lot of things. Without the overarching storyline, this seems like a random collection of ancient literature. But more importantly, it's harder to have a right understanding of God because this story is the primary way he reveals himself. So I want each one of you sitting here tonight to be one less believer who has not heard the whole story of God. So before we jump in, allow me to just briefly explain the homework and the structure of this class. If you've looked through the workbook at all, you've seen that there isn't a lot of homework. There's only about two or three pages for each week, and then there is a page of reflection questions for after each teaching. So take some time to go over those before starting into the next week's content. So the reason the homework is so minimal is because I want you to still have the capacity and time to um, do the reading plan. Practically speaking, the first step of understanding the story of Scripture is just taking it in. Covering the expanse of the Bible requires us to read broadly and quickly. 
as opposed to slow, deep study. While studying is like using a microscope and seeing all the details and intricacies of a passage, what we're going to do here will be like being up in an airplane and looking down on everything. This plan is designed to take you through the story of the Bible in an accessible way. So you're not reading the whole Bible. You're just following the plot line. There are 100 readings, so you can choose how many you do each day. And by the end, you should be able to connect the dots from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The third column there on the chart is for you to write down a word or a phrase, just keep it simple, uh, to remind yourself of the contents of each passage. When you're finished, you should be able to look back on all the mile markers of the biblical narrative. Listen, I know the Bible is a massive book. So if you struggle to read consistently or have never read the entire Bible, I hope this will be a helpful stepping stone for you. I want it to make you want to read more. As I hope you'll come to see, this class is essentially an unabridged version of the gospel. The gospel is not just Jesus died to save me from my sin. But rather the good news of the gospel is the whole story of God from beginning to end. It doesn't start with you and your sin. It begins with the one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He chose to create as a display of his glory and an outpouring of his love. As the crowning touch, he created human beings, inviting us to enjoy him in relationship and partner with him in building his kingdom on earth. That's always been the goal. Everything that has been created is meant to magnify him and draw us to the giver of all good gifts. It's only when rightly aligned with him that we experience true humanity the way God intended. But instead of submitting to his good rule and reign, we wanted to call the shots. Our sin, our rejection of his lordship broke all of creation. And now we fixate on the created things instead of finding our delight in the creator. We exalt ourselves as little gods parading around like we know how to find true life. Collectively, as a humanity, we deserve the death penalty for our crimes of treason against the High King. Yet instead of destroying mankind, God persevered in mercy. On the heels of the very first sin in the garden, God immediately set his restoration plan in motion. He covenanted himself to a people that he knew would reject him. And he orchestrated thousands of years of history that would culminate in the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He was the plan from the very beginning. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, our sins are completely atoned for, and we can be reconciled to God, no longer enemies, but brought near as beloved children. And upon surrendering ourselves to Christ, we are reborn and remade into a new humanity by the power of the Spirit. We continue his kingdom mission here and now while we wait for the return of the King of Kings. Christ will destroy sin and death forever and we will live with him in his eternal kingdom of the new heavens and earth. So repent and believe, turn from your sins and be saved. Every other religion We'll give you a laundry list of things that you need to do. And then hopefully when you die, you've done enough good to outweigh the bad. 
and you'll get a pass into heaven. But biblical Christianity says you are dead in your sins. There's nothing you can do to earn your way back into the good graces of a holy God. Yet all that we couldn't do for ourselves, Christ accomplished as our representative. We can be forgiven of our sins and made right with God by putting our faith in Christ. It cost us nothing, but yet it cost us everything. We can't earn or buy our salvation, but we have to give up the rights of being our own boss. Acknowledge his lordship. He is not only to be our savior, but also our Lord. Have you been born again into this new life? Becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is much more than just a verbal profession, okay? We must believe and submit our whole selves to Christ the King. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you know that disciple is a Christian buzzword, and rightfully so. But here's the thing. We've got to know what these words mean. You need to know this from me right out of the bat, okay? I am a word nerd. We've got to get our definitions right, okay? So this is not just a religious term, but we rarely use it outside the church. So if I were to ask you, what would you say is a synonym for disciple? Student? Follower? Apprentice? You guys are stealing all my thunder. Okay. Yes, that's excellent. Very good. So, when I was growing up, I always heard follower as the, as the main one. Um, and it's a good synonym. But the issue I have with follower is this is the visual that comes to mind. Okay, <laughs> mama duck and her ducklings. <laughs> it's like just follow the leader and stay in line or you're going to get run over by a car. Okay. So maybe it's just me. I think we need to broaden our understanding, and this is where we're going. You guys were great. When we're talking about words that we use in Scripture, it can be super helpful to look at um, the original language. So the word that we get disciple from gives us some, you know, better context. So here is a definition based on the Greek word that it comes from. We find that a better synonym is actually learner. So a follower of Christ who learns the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle that they require. So you see this includes the concept of following right out of the gate. But then notice the steps. Learning the doctrines of scripture and then acting accordingly. All right, so you could argue that those baby ducks are learning from their mama, they probably are. But to me that visual just seems very robotic. So I think a better visual is exactly what you said, Diane, um, of apprentice. I think this is a much better picture. Instead of just robotically parroting the leader, it's coming alongside of, it's learning from, patterning ourselves after what we're learning. In the case of Christ, reproducing his image in the world. So think of this in the context of a small family-owned business, okay? Let's say you have employee A who's just there for the paycheck. You know the type? They show up, okay, not a minute early, but they're there on time, and just meeting the minimum requirements, just doing what needs done, because their eyes are on the prize, and the prize is 5 o'clock and the paycheck on Friday. But then you have employee B, who also happens to be the owner's son, and he has watched his father pour blood, sweat, and tears into this business, 
the company is thriving. The employees have a great place to work. They're serving their customer base well. It's a really beautiful thing. And so he's not going to just go in there and try to meet the minimum requirements. He has more skin in the game. He's going to be there as much as possible, learning everything he can about all the different aspects of the business. He's going to be right by his father's side, observing how he functions. All of this time in with his father is forming him. How he thinks, how he acts. Because one day he's going to be the owner, and he's going to continue his father's good work. So do you see how that's different than just being a baby duck? So let's take that understanding of discipleship and fit it back into the context of biblical Christianity. We've established that discipleship contains aspects of learning and then emulating. But what are the distinct markers of a disciple of Christ and how can we cultivate those qualities? So our mission statement here at LEFC is actually to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay, And the tagline contains four markers of a disciple. Do you know them? Love God, love people, live truth, proclaim Jesus. Okay? That's a great encapsulation. But I just want to break it down a little more so we can see the nuances of those phrases. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? So all of these markers that I'm going to mention are points of growth. Hear me. Okay? Not destinations. This is a lifelong process. I believe it starts with growing in knowledge. This is the learning part, okay? Growing in knowledge of God and his truth as he's revealed it to us. Secondly, growing in relationship with God. This understanding of him isn't just a head knowledge, but it deepens our affections for and our devotion to God. This is loving him, trusting him, communing with him, obeying him. Third, growing in transformation. This is regenerative, substantive change from the inside out. We're not left the same through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what that being born into that new humanity in Christ is all about. Your inner desires and affections are being transformed, realigned with God. And that's going to produce outward evidence. The fruit, if you will, of your word and deed. And then lastly, growing in multiplication. That we're investing in the discipling and the growth of others. We are meant to be a conduit of God's blessing, not a cul-de-sac. This doesn't have to be formal. But who are you telling about the truths of God? So let's go back to that first marker, growing in knowledge, and just unpack it a little bit. It has been my observation that this aspect of discipleship is often skipped over, at least in how we talk about it. We go right to the other aspects of relationship, like you should love God, you should trust God, you should walk with God. Okay, but friends, let's back this train up. How do we love someone that we don't know? It just does not make sense. One of the deepest core desires of our human psyche is that we know and are known by another. When we're talking about the staying power of a committed relationship, this is what we want, right? Tim Keller writes, to be loved but not known 
is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. Now, we understand how this works in human relationships, okay? But often we struggle to translate it to our relationship with God. He fully knows and truly loves us. And it takes us long enough to get our minds around that. Okay, but when it comes to us loving God, we don't put as much emphasis on knowing him. Certainly he cannot be fully known, right? We're going to get into that next week. But he is knowable. He did not just save us to have a church full of dutiful, indebted Christians. He saved us to be joined to him and to carry out his purposes on earth. Scripture promises that those who seek him will find him. And it turns out that he is completely lovely and the fulfillment of every longing heart. So do you see how these two things, knowledge and relationship, have to go together? They feed off of one another. The more you know him, the more you love him. The more you love him, the more you want to get to know him. They go together. Growth of knowledge and growth of relationship. If you want to love him more and trust him more, it's not about trying harder. Let's get to know him. What's he like? And then let him prove it through the walking with him in daily relationship. So the only reason that any of us can know God in the first place is because he has chosen to reveal himself. He's God. He has no need to be known or loved by us. Yet he chose to extend himself in relationship, to make himself knowable. So the pending question is, great, how do we know God? Or more precisely, how has he made himself known? So we're going to start with the broadest revelation of God. The broadest revelation. Does anyone know what that is? I heard it. Creation, right. So Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. We can learn a lot about God from creation, right? His power, his eternality, his creativity. I mean, you can make a list here. But we can't learn about salvation by looking at a tree. Do you understand? This is a broad, general revelation of who God is. And this next one, I almost didn't put in because it can be a little confusing, but we're just going to go for it, okay? So the second one is conscience. Conscience, Romans 2, 14 and 15. Hang with all the run-on sentences here. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, speaking of the Jewish law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the reason this gets a little confusing is because we sometimes use conscience interchangeably with the Holy Spirit. We're not going to get hung up on the technicalities, but they're actually not the same. All right? Even unbelievers have a conscience. And it is fallen like the rest of our beings. It is tainted by sin. But it can be formed and realigned according to truth. 
The point is humans have a morality that speaks to a greater good or a standard. And we know that standard is God himself. Third, God's special revelation, just meaning specific revelation, is through the person of Jesus Christ. All right? Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love this phrase, the exact imprint of his nature. Everything that we can learn about Jesus as recorded in the Gospels when he was here in the flesh is an exact representation of God's nature. He is the constant, perfect display of God. And last but not least is Scripture. This is Bible study, y'all. we got to get here. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. God is a speaking God. We have this meticulously preserved, translated collection of his words. Written by man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is our authority for truth. This is what we are staking our lives on. Not to mention our eternity. So as we move forward, we are going to be building on the foundation that this is God's true word and revelation. So to be a disciple of Christ, we must be a student of the Bible. If the scriptures reveal God most explicitly, then this is where we need to put our time in. Seeking to know him rightly and love him deeply. This is not the only means for knowing God, but every other way of interacting with him needs to be anchored here. What a tremendous gift this is. At this point in history, we have the finished written word, the complete story. And it's not even finished yet. We know of the God who has no beginning, and yet everything we do know finds its origin in him. We're still living here somewhere in the middle. And we know where we're headed. He doesn't tell us exactly how that's all going to shake down. But we have a beginning, a middle, and an end. We have a story. Theologians have come up with a really simple way of summarizing the meta-narrative or this big story of Scripture. Maybe you've heard this before. Starting with creation, fall, meaning the fall into sin, redemption accomplished through Christ, and ending with glorification. All right, creation, fall, redemption, glorification. And think of this in terms of story, right? Beginning, middle, and end. As you know, the creation of the world is recorded in the first two chapters of the Bible. The fall of man is in Genesis chapter 3, right? Okay? And then we have a lot of time that passes until we get to the Gospels, where we have the story of Jesus and his redemption. And then glorification refers to the consummation of all things. When Christ returns and establishes his kingdom in fullness, that's revelation. So it's just a matter of sorting all that stuff out in the middle, which is like 95% of the Bible. Okay? So without this overarching storyline, this is what I'm saying, it just feels a little fragmented, right? How do you make sense of this? 
I'm sure we all have stories of how individual verses have been taken out of context, but really whenever we read or study a book out disconnected from this whole story, we're kind of doing the same thing. This is not just a random collection of history and poetry and prophecy. This is a creative, intentional unfolding of the revelation of God. He wrote this story, orchestrating all of history to make himself known to mankind. So I was just explaining this to my third graders on Sunday. I just got a whole new batch of them in Sunday school, and they're bright-eyed and blank canvas. Um, I was explaining to them how the stories of the Bible show us what God is like. All right? And I asked him, okay, so like Daniel in the lion's den, what does that story tell you about God? Not what does it tell you what to do. What does it tell you about God? And just with this minor adjustment of thought, they were able to pull out, well, God is worthy of, of our devotion and our worship. Those are my words, but that he is powerful and that no one can mess up his plan. Yes and amen. You can take that to the bank. We need to start thinking about the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, in this way. God showed his people and now shows us through this written word who he is over and over and over again. And we are so accustomed to taking what we read and trying to fit it into our story. And really what we're meant to do is to be drawn up into his story. Have you ever considered that God's the one that came up with the plot line in the first place? You don't have to be an English nerd to follow this, okay? I'm pretty sure my daughter had this in middle school LA class last year. But we already talked about beginning, middle, and end. But specifically, think about the middle, okay? The best stories have some sort of problem or tension that builds and builds and builds until it reaches a climax, which is the turning point of the narrative. And then that climax allows for the resolution or the end. We are wired for this, okay? Think of the stories that you love most, the books, the movies. They follow a similar plot line. There was something good, and it was lost. And then you just have this tension and this pain, and you want resolution. And then there's breakthrough, right? Victory, deliverance, reconciliation, whatever the story is. Whatever resolves the tension or the pain. And then you're left with a happy ending. At least in the stories I want to read. <laughs> Does that not sound like the big gospel story of what God has done through Jesus Christ? It's no wonder that our hearts ache for resolution. Because he has hardwired this into our very DNA. A few weeks ago, there was a huge warehouse fire in the area. My family and I were nearby when it started. So as we were driving home away from the fire, we're passing, of course, like a slew of emergency vehicles, like rushing to the scene. But in addition to all the first responders, there are streams of people on both sides of the road just like coming to the fire. Like it was like a parade of them. Now, you can see the smoke for miles. It was a really big fire. But I was amazed on our drive home how many people we passed, and they were standing out in their yards 
looking at the smoke. And, like, they couldn't see where it was coming from. They couldn't see anything that was going on. They just, something's going on. And they're just staring. What draws us to a scene like that? Is it not our desire for story? We're drawn into the tension or action knowing that something's wrong and desiring to see resolution. On a lighter note, a similar drive uh, motivates us as we strike up conversation with a stranger. When we go to get to know someone, you probably did it tonight, so what's your name? Where do you live? What do you do? Tell me about your family. We ask questions. We seek out their story to make connection. But perhaps the most important thing to recognize is not only are we drawn to stories for entertainment or connection, but we are shaped by stories. Molded, formed, transformed. Think of your own personal experience. I imagine just about everyone in this room has gone through something that has changed you. Many people who have walked through illness, trauma, addiction, come out the other side and they say, I'm never going to be the same, for better or for worse. They have been shaped by the story. But this isn't just about us and our individual stories, okay? So let's pan back out for a moment. There are bigger overarching narratives that we come to align with, and then we are shaped by them. These narratives are essentially a set of beliefs that are trying to tell us what's true. What's true about us, what's true about society, what's true about God. And whatever narrative that we've aligned with is going to form our perspective. And how we think fuels our affections and our actions. This happens to everyone, whether or not we're aware of it. Every one of us myself included, is living in a narrative, living in a story. All right, think of it like um, a chest of drawers. The overarching narrative is like the chest itself, okay? This is what holds everything together and gives it structure. And then each drawer would represent different facets of your life, okay? So think about what your drawers would be labeled, all right? Family, job, ministry, Hobbies, finances, possessions, entertainment, health, schedule. Some of you are like, I need a bigger set of drawers. <laughs> so I feel. But if your faith or your spirituality is a drawer, then I ask you, what is the chest? What overarching narrative or set of beliefs is holding everything else together? By what values or beliefs are you operating in each of those subcategories? What we're believing about what's true has a profound impact on how we live on a normal Thursday. These alternative stories are, that shape us often do so in really subtle ways. In this era of the internet and just hyper-connectivity, you are being constantly bombarded with stories all day long. So what are you feeding your mind? We become what we behold. We become what we behold. Beholding means to fix your attention upon. So what are you looking at? What are you listening to? What's consuming your thoughts? What's coming out in your conversation? 
what draws your compassion or your affection or maybe your anger? These are good diagnostic questions. Whatever we are feeding our minds and immersing ourselves in, that's the story that we're being formed by. And when our minds go, our heart and actions are sure to follow. It's like meat in a marinade that just starts to break down and it absorbs the flavors of its surroundings. Let me give you a really basic example. So if you're a parent of young kids or you have young kids in your life, have you ever had to pull the plug on a TV show because you were hearing it come out of the child's mouth? Yes, okay. My mom did this when we were younger and I thought she was being so over the top ridiculous. I was like, no. And then I had kids and I was like, oh. <laughs> it's so frustrating how the show can be overall quite innocent and all it takes is one character, right, to be whiny or disrespectful and suddenly you're disciplining your kid because you let them watch the show. They don't know that, but you know that. And so you've got to cut it off at the source. They are passively becoming what they're beholding. What are you beholding that is shaping you according to a different story than what God says? The tricky part is most of these other stories or philosophies contain some truth. And it gets packaged with lies and it just distorts the whole thing. Suddenly that truth that maybe hooked you in in the first place has you all tangled up in this false story. And it can feel awfully confusing and disorienting. We like to think we're above falling for scams, but that's like inadvertently what's happening when we're falling victim to these false stories. I learned my lesson with scammers a few years ago. So I don't even remember the details. I think we were trying to buy a used cell phone online. Not a great idea. <laughs> but anyways, this guy was, we were emailing back and forth, and he instructed me to send a money order to a P.O. box somewhere, and then he would ship the phone. No. So I didn't think critically about what he was asking me to do. I'm just like, okay. So no sooner do I send that money order off, and I'm like, what did I just do? So dumb. Hindsight is 2020. I was just following along. I wasn't thinking. And therein lied my problem. Conversely, I was preparing this very teaching when I got a phone call. And the caller ID said PPNL. So I was like, oh, I'm picking up. And they're like, it was this message. Oh, yeah, we've just realized that you were overcharged and you're eligible for a refund. Just follow these prompts. And I'm like, nope, hung up the phone. Do you know why? It's because I keep a really close eye on our bills. I'm kind of a control freak, okay? So I know exactly what's going on. I know that all of our charges were legitimate. There's nothing out of the ordinary. And so because I was acquainted with the truth, the lie was easy to spot. God's story, the greatest story of all time, is what's really real. We live in a culture that largely denies objective truth. They even go so far as to redefine the word. But at its core, truth has always been and always will be an account of reality. 
People are always going to perceive things differently, sure. But reality is what simply is. It's like we're arguing about the color of the carpet. I say it's gray, you say, no, it's not, it's orange. I'm going to choose my own truth. It makes no sense to say that we choose our own truth because truth is an account of reality, what absolutely is. All of the world's stories are vying for your allegiance with truth claims, okay, of what it means to be human. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Do you hear it? It's identity, origin, purpose. Sometimes those questions and answers are explicit, but they're often implied. They're just slipped in there. But friends, I have good news. God's story answers these questions with truth. What's really real? And his story is not one of many that's just laid out on the table that you get to choose from. His story is the ultimate reality. So you either accept it or you don't, but that doesn't change what is. It doesn't change what is. We are not only hardwired for story, but for knowing our place in it. That's why we ask these questions. As attractive as it sounds to be the center of your own universe and write your own life story, we find far greater meaning of latching into something bigger than ourselves. A philosopher by the name of Alistair McIntyre said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? If I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? This is a cry for belonging, for context, for answers to those fundamental questions of who we are and why the world do we exist. As a child of God, you belong in this story. You have a place, but you are not the main character. And I hope that comes as a relief instead of a blow. There is far more to this narrative than your individual life. But as I think you'll soon see, that doesn't detract meaning away from your life. It actually infuses it. God has invited us into what he's doing. And spoiler alert, the main character of God's story is God. So if we're going to participate in his story as a disciple of Christ, we must behold him, fix our attention upon him, because we become what we behold. We must immerse ourselves in his truth. You know how most smartphones have those screen time stats now? Sobering, aren't they? Well, what if there was a program tracking all the content that you take in in a day's time? Okay, so I'm talking everything from active social media scrolling to your morning devotions to what is playing on the loudspeakers at Target, okay? Everything that you're actively or passively taking in in a day's time. How would that look on a pie chart? Okay, how much of what you're immersing yourself in, actively or passively, is rooted in the truth of Scripture, and how much is from the world? Hear me in this. 
We're not after a perfect equation or a perfect balance here. It's simply an awareness. As a disciple of Christ, we must intentionally fill our minds with truth. We must put the time in to learn who God is and what he declares is reality. The more we're immersed in God's story, the more we're going to be able to spot those counterfeits and know that they are just hollow substitutes. This comes all the way back to where we began. As a disciple of Christ, we must be a learner of him. Remember that picture of apprenticeship. Okay, and a huge part of learning to know God and participating in his story is being a student of the word because that's how he's revealed himself. So what has been your experience with God's word? What emotion rises up in you when I ask that question? I hope some of you feel joy, but I know we also deal with guilt and shame and resentment and apathy. So wherever you're at on that spectrum, I am gently but firmly exhorting you to be in the word. This is where life is. Maybe you need to restart and that's okay. It seems to me that because there's supposed to be a relational aspect of reading the word, it can be easy to quit if we're not feeling the connection. But I'm just encouraging you to reframe your thinking, okay? Remember the primary purpose of the Bible is to make God known, okay? We take a look at this. There's a lot of ways that we use the Bible, that the Bible helps us, a lot of different applications. But the primary purpose is to make him known. And so that needs to be our primary goal, not our only goal, our primary goal when we come to the word. And this perspective helps to strengthen us in the discipline because y'all know our feelings and our circumstances are subject to change. But if you are showing up to his word, desiring to know him better, he will be found by you. He promises that. And knowing and enjoying him is our highest good as a human being. This discipline becomes a delight. So in our time together this semester, I hope to whet your appetite for the Bible, but more importantly, for the God of the Bible, for the God of these scriptures. I also just want you to feel more comfortable navigating scripture, understanding how it all fits together. We're going to touch on a lot of things that you may want to study in more detail later. Remember the high view here. I'm going to keep us on track at the high level so that we don't lose sight of our main objective. And that is seeking and knowing the heart of God. As I think you'll come to see, aligning with the true narrative of who God is and what he's doing in the world, it changes everything. And as your mind is renewed by the Spirit, your thoughts and actions will be shaped into conformity with Christ. These big truths will shape your daily reality. Because, friends, let's be honest, if our understanding of God does not meet us on the dirty kitchen floor or on the sleepless night or in the hospital room, 
then what bearing does it have on our lives? It's just another drawer. But God has graciously invited us in to know him and to participate in what he's doing. Let's pray and commit this time to the Lord. Oh God, you are worthy of all of our honor, of our time, of our devotion. I just pray for each woman here tonight that wherever she's at with you and with your word, that this would be a fresh start. Um, Spirit, that you would just guide us into truth, that you would increase our hunger for you and your word. And God, we do ask that as we go through this study, as we go through this semester together, that you would make yourself known, that we would come away with a greater knowledge of you, and not just a head knowledge, Father, but a knowledge that messes us up, that transforms us from the inside out, that we may be fervent disciples of you. We long to know you and to make you known. So Father, would you bless our time together? We commit this all to you. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen.